Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer a Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer a Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Your cousin from Boston. New Sam Adams Wicked Easy is light and wicked easy to drink. Which means it's wicked easy to call up some buddies for a little day sesh. So, wicked sorry I'm late. Sam Adams Wicked Easy. The Boston Beer Company, Boston, Massachusetts. Drink responsibly. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture, and when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space, just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii.
All right, it's film study. And this week, we're going to look back at kind of what happened this past weekend, where we all watched Ed Reed's really long induction speech. So we're going to talk about Ed Reed and his career. Ken, Michael, how you guys doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing good. I'm in a uh, hotel again away from my family, which is my uh, just how this summer's going. So I can't wait till Friday to be back with family. Michael, yeah, how's things for you? Oh, I can't complain, man. I'm doing great. Sorry to hear that. Uh, I know what that can be like sometimes. So hopefully you get back to them soon. Oh, it, it also meant that I got to skip out and miss on the movers packing everything up in Maryland. And I also missed the movers unboxing everything in Florida. So, oh, darn. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, the wife and kids have had to take care of everything. But it's all right. I'll be back there at the end of the week. And then we'll have our family back long term. So, all right, guys. But we're not here to talk about me and my schedule. Let's get to Ed Reed and one of the coolest busts the Hall of Fame have ever put out. Was a was definitely a cool one. That hair is uh, is out of this world. And honestly, there's just his face looks completely like him. I didn't think the Ray Lewis bust was nearly as uh, depictive. It's nearly as nearly as accurate in terms of uh, what his facial features are. Yeah, no, this Ed Reed bust, man, they they nailed it. Um, and I was wondering. You know, sometimes what sort of part of a player's career they're going to take that that look from, you know, are they going to take it from a younger part? Like with Ray, they they obviously took it from a younger time. I, I honestly don't know where they took it from. <laughs> but but with Ed, it's like this is, you know, what he looks like right now, uh, which is cool with, you know, all of the hair with the I mean, you can't can't see the gray obviously in the bus but you can just tell that that's him right down to a t that's his look that cool that suave kind of demeanor i mean they really captured it the boy ed reed had a weekend to remember in terms of the event itself he he set the record i'm told by a few seconds for the longest speech ever and it didn't last long it only lasted two speakers until tony gonzalez busted it by two more minutes so uh reed was longer than Favre, but gonzalez was longer than Everybody. And uh, the new record's up to 39 minutes. My guess is they won't hold it there. We're almost getting to the point where we need, I feel like, Academy Award music or one of those old-style shepherd's crooks to pull these guys off the stage. And I, it just gets, it keeps uh, increasing, well, like the um, like the player contract market, right? Uh, uh, one, one guy gets, you know, highest-paid player at a position, and then immediately uh, a couple of months after there's a new next pay next highest paid player so i think you're right if we don't have something to sort of give them the wrap it up sign they sort of cue music the record's just going to keep getting longer and longer there's yeah. there's not going to be any end to it <laughs> yeah. i mean they could they could they could get a wave but unless there's some unless there's some or else to that there's not going to be an, there's not going to be any stops to a lot of these things or you know, they can make them practice it I thought it was actually funny that Eisen said in advance that he was coming with some remarks prepared, some not prepared, so we'll see what happens kind of thing. And it did seem like Ed, you know, obviously very emotional, very fun speech. He He's not trying to be politically correct in any way with, with regard to football, although he was incredibly politically correct with regard to other things, yeah. politics. Yeah. <laughs> but he, but yeah, he, and... He, and he he gave some indications and in some interviews and stuff that he did before the weekend that he might touch on some political topics. You know, he has some views on some of those things. But, yeah, when it comes to football, you're going to get, and we got, what you always get. 
right? I mean, we we probably will touch on some of these stories. We we had some of that here in Baltimore at times, especially when Harbaugh first got the job. So uh, he he was who he has always been, and I think that's one reason why he's so beloved uh, among the fan base and and really across the league. I mean, it's not just the Ravens fans, obviously. I mean, I think across the league, he's he's extremely well respected, and extremely well thought of, and. Um, I don't think you get too many arguments for best safety of all time. You hear some things every now and then, but I really don't think you get too many who who will contradict you on that too strongly. It's the Steelers and the Eagles fans. They all have their – we've all got our individual guy, and you can't tell the Eagles fans anything. You really can't tell the Steelers fans any, either anything. I thought it was funny that, that he – Took an immediate dig into the Bengals and Browns, said thanks for the 30 picks. And that's the kind of thing. It was only 22, by the way. But that's exactly the way that line sets up is, is you know, Reed, Reed claims he had 30 picks against these guys. And they have to come back. Is it, it's only 22. What are you talking about? And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. It was only 22. So he gets to restate, you know, what was going on. It's, it's a, a, a pure Ed Reed moment. The entire weekend, I saw a picture of all of the Hall of Famers who were just inducted uh, with their jackets, and everybody's dressed up very nicely. And Ed Reed has got a different dress code he's involved in. He's look, it's not like he's not cool. He's very cool, but but he's just at a different dress code. He's taking it down to business casual or even casual with a yellow jacket on, and everybody else is dressed up as if they're uh, you know they're going to prom or something. It's uh, it's kind of funny anyway. And he can pull it off. You know, everybody can't pull that look off. There's some people who would try to do that in that kind of setting when it kind of feels like it's not appropriate to do it. But then other guys who just are that way, that's their essence. They can pull that look off anywhere. Like it doesn't matter, you know, what else is going on. I mean, right down to the cigar in hand, you know, yeah, so. How about that? Only he. Unlit most of that weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Walking around with that thing. It's just a, it, it's like a, a Groucho Marx affectation. Almost that he's carrying around to go back a few years, obviously. Yeah, but, uh, I mean it's I mean only only Ed Reed, man. Only only he could pull that whole look off, and it's not contrived. I mean, this is him. You could just see him. You could you know imagine just visiting him on any random day, and that's what he looks like. He's got a cigar in hand, backpack on. <laughs> you know, that's just him. All right, well, let's go ahead and talk about Ed Reed's career again because we really, really are excited to have this show and talk about it. We're, we're, we're uh, a few days later than we were originally hoping to record. That's okay. Uh, Ed's career is worth talking about at any time. So uh, we've we've got a mailbag out there, and we've asked people to put in their comments, and we'll, we'll make sure we try and get to as many of those as we can at the end. But going back to uh, 2002, when the Ravens were first scouting Ed Reed, obviously— uh, there were a lot of questions at the time. I think a lot of people didn't think a safety was a good guy to take in the first round. This was just not something worth taking, using a first round pick on, but he had towered over college football. He had 21 career interceptions at Miami. He went back for his senior year after he had eight interceptions as a junior. I can't even imagine anyone doing that today. <laughs> no, and absolutely not. He's drafted number 24. Other Ravens greats were drafted ahead of him in the first round, specifically Bryant McKinney at number seven and Dante Stallworth at number 13. So I think the Ravens did okay bargain-wise. Yeah, I mean, uh, you look at what kind of career uh, resulted from that pick, absolutely. Uh, and it's, it's, it's interesting you say that about how, you know, there was, there was really kind of the argument at the time that maybe the value really wasn't there at that position, uh, at that particular pick. Um, 
and we still hear that argue uh, that argument today, you know, about, you know, taking safeties in the first round. But his pedigree in college, you mentioned it. I mean, I don't I don't I don't know that it matters. Like when you have that kind of production, right. you got to take that player in the first round. You know, this is so rare. You, you do. And I think it's generally accepted now that there are certain positions where you have to use a first round pick if you want a Hall of Fame talent. And, and free safety is one of them. And so, uh, you know, Derwin James, who admittedly is a strong safety, Ed Reed also started off as a strong safety, won his DPOY there, but he is a, a guy that a lot of people said, including myself, that you have to draft him if you get the chance to get him in the first round. And, uh, and you know, he's in that group. And Earl Thomas was in that group, and, and so are others. But, but uh, Ed, a great value at 24, just in his rookie season. He only missed seven snaps. As a rookie, of course, he came in after that cap purge following the 2001 season when the Ravens let a lot of contracts go and they can thank Elvis Gerback and they can <laughs> thank uh, Leon Searcy for contributing mightily to that. But a purge was probably going to be necessary anyway. But the really interesting thing was how many defensive players got their first opportunity in 2002 along with Reed. Uh, we had Marcus Douglas, Kelly Gregg, Kimoyatu, uh, Anthony Weaver, Bart Scott. Adelis Thomas, Gary Baxter, and Will Demps, they all got their first significant playing time in that year. Scott had 57 snaps, so I'm kind of cheating on that. Maybe he's not significant playing time that year. But, uh, you know, that's, a, that's a, a major component of the 2003 through 2006 defense in that group. Yeah, I mean, that really was, in a lot of ways, some of the core, you know, foundation, core building blocks of that great sort of defensive legacy that was to come. Um, and it's ironic how it happened where, you know, you, you're, you're purging the team and, and kind of established guys who are on the team and you're looking at it like, you know, what are we going to do? You know, you're losing these established players, but then these young players all come in and get some playing time and, you know, you don't know nobody. I, well, maybe you knew, I didn't know at the time that these guys were going to help be a part, you know, help build and be a part of, of what this defense turned out to be over the next couple of years. But um, this is a good reminder. I think it's a good a good lesson uh, to keep in mind when when teams go through these kinds of purges. That hey, sometimes there's a silver lining. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's just a salary dump, and you're going to be in purgatory for a while. But uh, sometimes there's a silver lining to it. Well, there's something. There's a story there for the 2019 Ravens who are in the same position with a bunch of guys leaving in their free agency year, and maybe the 2020 Ravens as well. That there are a lot of players they need to replace. And while it's terrible to lose Mosley and it's difficult to lose Weddle, although they certainly have a replacement there that's at, at a similar or even greater cost, um, and it's hard to say goodbye to Sizzle after all these years, uh, you got a hell of a group of players coming along behind them and a bunch of draft picks that are very exciting and we're, we'll, we'll get us excited for this preseason. A little bit more about 2002. Let's talk about that. So just in week four on that Monday night game, which turned the Ravens season around, they were 0-2 at that point. They came into that Monday night game. A lot of people remember Chris McAllister going off for the 107-yard uh, missed field goal return. And they remember that it's Todd Heaps coming out of party. And that maybe even that Chris Redmond started that game for the Ravens. This was before Blake took over for him. Uh, but Ed Reed blocked his first punt in that game. as the only blocked punt of his career. He didn't return for a touchdown, but did set up a score. And he also had his first interception off Brian Greasy in that game. Talk about a coming out party. Uh, <laughs> the thing that that uh, I remember a little bit about that game was I, I do remember the block punt. Um, and I remember it, it immediately made me think about 
what he did in college. Like he he sort of done, you know, sort of did a similar thing where obviously he was a great safety and a great defensive back, but played on special teams, not just on plunk, uh, on on punt block or or you know, kick field goal block teams, but also returned punts. Uh and it was a really good punt returner. Uh, and I know we'll probably talk about this as we go through, but in addition to all of the interceptions, in addition to all the great plays that he made on defense, um, he was a heck of a special teams player, but but just too valuable to you know to be to have back there as you know uh, an every every time punt returner. It's kind of a special situation punt returner as his career went on, but was a really really good special teams player. Right. He became a designated fair catcher. And a lot of teams have that. They have one guy who's better at catching the football in the air and, and is less likely to less likely to drop it. And they put him back in certain situations in, in that way. And then, of course, a couple times he did go off. He went off on, on one return against Minnesota. He went off on another return in the in the uh, in the game against Cincinnati, the opener in 2007 for a touchdown, put him ahead. It's just I, I always expected something very special when he was back there, but it was usually a designated fair catch. I want to talk a little bit about his third career interception, which occurred in 2002 against the Bengals. Is at home, and he reached his hand up and prematurely celebrated going into the end zone, had it knocked free for a touchback that gave the Bengals the ball back. And what I remember most about that was people at work complaining about Reed the next day. And I thought, you know, He's the best player on this defense. Ray Lewis was hurt at that point, by the way. But but he was the best player on this defense right now. You know, if you're if you're upset with him, you know, we're, we're in a lot of trouble here. And that was something that seemed to follow him the rest of his career was he was just too loosey-goosey with the football after an interception. Yes, the uh, the many lateral attempts, uh, you know, uh, we heard coaches, both Billick and Harbaugh, uh, sort of bemoan those. And uh, but I think they understood that was part of his greatness. Right. Is that you were going to have to take a little bit of, oh, my, you know, I wish that he wouldn't have tried to lateral that ball or I wish he wouldn't have uh, tried to, to, you know, sort of reach the ball out before he got in and scored. But sometimes with great players, you have to allow that sort of breadth for them to really express their full greatness. And sometimes it's going to go across the line and get, you know, from greatness into sort of riskiness, uh, but ton more great than risk. Uh, with the way that Ed played, and he was looking to score mm-hmm. on defense, right? Every time he got the ball in his hands, he was looking to score, and if he saw that maybe he wasn't going to be able to finish with the score, he was going to get it to somebody else who he thought could. Yeah, very much so. And uh, Ed, you know, one of the things about looking at, like, stolen base statistics or the number of times a guy gets thrown out at second base after a single, you need to you need to realize that if you're not getting thrown out at all, on those opportunities, you're not taking enough chances because you should you should have some failures on the margin because there's going to be lots of success on the margin. And believe me, taking the ball out of Kyle Bowler's hands between two thousand or you know Jeff Blake in two thousand two, but taking the ball out of Bowler or McNair's hands from two thousand two through two thousand seven, I'll 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 take that entire range. I'll say was not a bad thing. And in fact, it was something that 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 I think Billick came to realize. Haloti Nada intercepted a pass in his first NFL game in the wipeout at Tampa Bay, 27 to nothing, to start the 2006 season. And what he said about Haloti Nada is that he, he got down to the nine-yard line with a 60-yard return on that interception. He said he's got to find a way to get in the end zone there. And he was exactly right. The Ravens had to settle for three on that on that field goal. They got the ball to the nine-yard line. But Reed understood that, and he should have been taking risks to get in the end zone. I think he did a good job of it, and I generally think Ed Reed got paid for the risk he took. 
Yeah, and he he talked about that uh, on an interview I heard him on um, over the weekend that during that time in particular, that time span that you mentioned, that they weren't good on offense. And so he really took it upon himself to find ways to try to score. He said, look, if, if we didn't, there was a good chance that either they weren't or they were going to be kicking a field goal, and you can't trade threes for sevens. And so his mindset really was a defense – you know, a defense who wants to be a championship caliber defense, it's not enough to take the ball away. You've got to convert it into scores. Yeah, completely agree. Let's move on. I've got other notes for 2002. It's a great season, a, a wonderful rookie season. Actually, one of my favorite seasons as a as a Ravens fan to actually see that team after being wiped out by the purge to still make a really good run at the playoffs and, and have that very disappointing loss to the Browns the uh, the second to last week of the season. But anyway, we move on to 2003 when the Ravens took over again as the best defensive team in the league. Reed had seven picks. He blocked another punt, the one that everybody remembers, that triggered the rally against the Seattle Seahawks at home in that remarkable 44-41 comeback win. Yeah, what a game. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what a game. I went back. I, I think I, I told you before the show, I went back to look at some games Um on Game Pass, and they only go back, I think, to like 2010, 2009 right now. But then obviously you can go to YouTube and, and watch highlights and go back even further. So, yeah, just going back and reliving some of those highlights. And then um, they kind of had a, a little bit of an extended highlight of that particular game, just the scoring and the back and forth. I mean, that I didn't remember it uh, and, until I, I watched the highlights and did kind of trigger some stuff. And I'm like, man, what a great game. <laughs> yeah. I, I know I was supposed to be focusing on him, but I was like, this is such a great game. It's it's one of the great games in football history. It, it had everything. It had an enormous mistake by the officials that kept the games alive. It had great play. The great play by Reed on the putt block. It had a great play by Lewis the, the uh, to, to pull the ball away from Max Strong. It had Dilfer coming to the game for two plays and helping the Ravens in the overtime. It had uh, uh, Hasselbeck throwing for five touchdowns, no interceptions, and uh, still losing that ball game, which is just incredible to me still. So, uh, <laughs> I, w- wonderful game. I just, I, I, we don't need to talk exclusively about that. Yeah. Um, the Ravens, obviously, that year, were carried by Jamal Lewis on offense, and that's really all they had. They had Kyle Bowler, who was awful. They had Anthony Wright, who wasn't a whole lot better, but but he got to keep the reins even after Bowler was healthy and came back. And uh, it was really all about that defense being the best individual unit in the entire league and carrying the Ravens to the playoffs that year. So exciting year, and Reed right at the heart of it, of course, uh, defensively. Yes, Ravens fans, younger Ravens fans, don't don't ever forget – Right. If they look at the current quarterback situation or even the last couple of years of Flacco, you've got to have perspective. If you yeah. think things are bad, <laughs> just just think about and listen to some of these names that we're throwing around as we do this recording. And then just go look them up. Go look them up and, and, and watch YouTube and see what was going on back then. Be thankful for what you're seeing right now. Be <laughs> thankful for what you saw with Flacco. I'm telling you, this is this is what we've seen. This has not been the overwhelming, you know, sort of part of history in terms of quarterback play with the Ravens. Yeah, the Ravens went a long time before they found their franchise quarterback in 2008. So, uh, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was uh, quite difficult. So let's move on to 2004. Happy times because Ed had one of his finest seasons. And, and you can say that he won the Defensive Player of the Year award. A little out of position still at strong safety. He played his first three years in the NFL there before he moved to free safety in 2005. And that was really the 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 point of switch 
you can see it in his tackle totals that he made a lot of plays around the line of scrimmage, did a lot of run blitzing off the edge mm-hmm. in his initial years. That was that was always cool to watch because he had a great sense of when he could come off the edge, and he just always was pretty good about reading keys from that running back and potentially also from a fullback if they were using it to, to make a tackle in the backfield. Yeah, I I, uh, I can remember some of that vaguely. Um, specifically, though, uh, and I was looking at this again, the timing of that. Uh, he just had such an innate sense of when to time his blitz. So, like you mentioned, coming off the edge, but I also saw a couple uh, sort of coming off the ball, right, and sort of just timing, blitzing a gap or shooting a gap. And you would see him sort of creep up, because uh, I know this is another thing that we'll talk about, but when he was – truly back in coverage. I mean, they would be like 25 yards deep from the line. <laughs> I mean, it's like way back there. And the amount of space that he could cover. So he'd creep up, and so you could kind of tell something was going on. But then still, just the exact perfect timing with the snap count, an offensive lineman not able to even get a hand on it before he would get in the backfield and get a TFL or force the running back into somebody else's arms. Just really great instincts and timing for for those run blitzes. Yeah, and it's it, it, those running backs, they knew they were getting hit in the knee, but that's a great memory you have of that particular thing. I've actually forgotten that, but Reed's timing to creep to the line of scrimmage exactly at the snap, I mean, he had as good or better as any three-point stance get-off in terms of that, and, and it appeared like he should be offsides, but one thing Ed Reed used to say about the punt team, being on the punt team, was that he got most of his blocks off the center, that mm. he, he could, he, if the center was in with the ball somehow, then he knew it was going. And I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if he was really watching the center to figure out when the ball is going to be snapped or he'd figure out the opponent's cadence in a way that would get him into the backfield early. But remarkable instincts in that regard. I heard a coach say this once, and I don't know that Ed Reed was doing this, but and I don't even know how practical it is, but it sounded cool in theory. So he talked about reaction time, right? When you're looking at the snap and you're talking about getting off the ball. And he gave this demonstration of how fast you can react to movement, right? The movement of the ball versus how fast you can react to the shadow of the ball moving. So when you don't actually see the ball, but you see the shadow, and he said your eye can recognize that quicker and react to that quicker than the actual movement of the ball in the center's hand. So he was teaching his guys to watch the shadow (laughs) to time their get off. That is freaking fascinating. Link me. If you've got that, I would love to watch that, Michael. Link me. Yeah, it's a a, uh, D-line coach at Florida State. Um, It was one of these Nike Coach of the Year clinics. I have to go back and dig it up, like, where he did it at. But he's the only guy I've ever heard talk about that. And he said that's – he played in the NFL, and I can't remember his name now. Uh, but I want to say he played for the Rams at one point in time. And he, he said there was some some pretty good defensive tackles there before he joined the, the the team as a rookie. And he said, that's what that whoever that guy was. I have to go back and look. I told him that's how he did it. Because he was like, mm-hmm. how do you because he, he could literally get his hands on the center before the center got the ball between his legs. And he's like, huh. how do you do that? And he said, I'm not looking at the ball. I'm looking at the shadow of the ball, <laughs> okay. which is crazy. Sim- there must be something there that light dark or something makes it easier. He talked about something. He got into like, you know, cognitive stuff about your eye and how it recognizes light. And mm. Like he got pretty deep. Uh, but anyway, that's a that's a huge diversion. But I just, you know, thinking about Ed's timing and, uh, you know, his ability to kind of get a really good jump on the snap just, just sort of triggered that for me. Sorry, I don't want to take us too far. No, that's OK. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. Let's go back to 2004 for a minute, because 2004 had a really landmark presentation by NFL Films that I think a lot of people have seen 
But if you hadn't, it's it's probably out there on YouTube, and I know it's probably out there also still on on Game Pass where they have some specific content. But the Game of the Week presentation for the 2004 game at the Meadowlands, I believe it was in November, the Ravens were 5-3 and three coming into the game. They left the game 6-3. and three. But it's one of the most astounding things you'll ever see. It's a precursor of FX where they did all uh, mic'd up players and announcers for the radio of both teams from the ballpark and had no narration. And it doesn't seem funny to have no narration until you hear something that doesn't have narration. And this is just seamlessly put together. But the stuff on field is hilarious. Uh, there's two that involve Ed Reed directly. The first one I thought was interesting was he plays rock, paper, scissors with Will Demps to decide who's going to blitz at one point during the game. <laughs> it's just, just hilarious. Very Ed. <laughs> and the second one is Ed Reed triggered the comeback in the game. The Ravens are down 14 nothing, about to go down by three scores, whether it was a field goal or a touchdown. And Lamont Jordan, the ex-Maryland running back, rolled right on a halfback option and looked to the end zone. They switched over to Herm Edwards' mic at the time and said – no, don't throw it. That's it, Reed. That's it, Reed. <laughs> and he threw it. the ball. Sure enough, Reed picks the ball off in the end zone, brings it back 103 yards for a touchdown. Now, uh, there was a – Will Demps actually had a, uh, a holding call on it, a very ticky-tack holding call that, mm-hmm. that uh, deleted some yards. But, uh, but Reed, if he had gotten the full yardage there, I believe would still be the all-time le- record holder for a single-season interception return yards. So uh, anyway, that record was broken, but he set that that year at 358 yards. And uh, certainly that particular uh, thing is just a, a, a remarkable gift from NFL films to do something that innovative. And then they really made something out of it and made that a regular uh, category of content they brought with these on-field sounds. Yeah, and that I, lo- I love what you know, sort of how that show developed and what it developed into that, that FX shows. Those are, those are awesome because you do get to see uh, this behind the scenes on the field stuff. And it's always kind of surprising just the kind of things that are actually going on between players and coaches during an NFL game. Like you, you rock, paper, scissors. You think, well, come on. I mean, the intensity, the pressure and everything that's going on. And these guys are doing like some of the silliest things <laughs> that you could possibly imagine. Uh, but no, I, I love it. But yeah, it, in terms of his return yards, I mean, it's it, when you're thinking back about his career and, and obviously just how great a player he was, sometimes I can spill over in a little hyperbole, but he might be one of the best open field players, mm-hmm. not just defensive players, offensive, just one of the best open right. field players in terms of being in the open field in space with the ball in his hands and maneuvering through traffic, making guys miss, setting up guys to make guys miss. Just so good at that. You know, you just, you couldn't, you couldn't tackle it, you know, yeah. once, once he was in the open field. Yeah. He, 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 not only was it very difficult to tackle him, but he really understood how to use an array of blockers. And it wasn't one guy he was trying to figure out that Miami interception. We're going to get to this a little later, but let's jump ahead and talk about it since we're on the topic in 2008 after in the playoff game, he had the interception. First of all, it's an over-the-shoulder interception. He makes the first guy miss. Got to have eyes in the back of his head to jump out of that little tackle from Cobbs on the back end. Goes all the way to the left side of the field from the defense's perspective. Okay, well, that gets all the offensive players. And then we got a lot of slow guys there to go along with a couple wide receivers and running backs. But you got a lot of slow guys on that field. Then 
meandering over to that side of the pasture from their perspective. <laughs> and then Reed cut it back and he used this wall of blockers. And you saw incredible block by Nada, a big block to absolutely flatten Pennington by Suggs. <laughs> he just hops over all the traffic and skips into the end zone. As soon as he does get in the end zone, he's clear, but somebody knocked the ball out of his hand and 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 through the end zone, of course, it was still a touchdown. But but it, that play just had everything. It was it was it's a highlight that I wish we saw even more. And it really illustrated how Ed Reed could set up the whole field. Yeah, he's a, he became a punt returner. You know, whenever he intercepted the uh, intercepted the ball, he became a punt returner, and you know, probably one of the best. Uh, I mean, if, if those interception return yards are any indication, the best <laughs> uh, of of all time at doing that. But yeah, just I, I you, you described that perfectly. I mean, he's he set that he orchestrated that whole thing um, and and knew exactly how to get the field turned to get, you know, flipped in terms of getting guys on one side versus the other to get to where he needed to get to. So it's it's more than just the physical ability. You can see just, you know, steps ahead, you know, in his mind in terms of how he's processing uh, what he needs to do and how he needs to get there. And the great ones, it's seamless. You know, right. it's, it's, they just make it look so easy. We've There are many other examples of this from Ed's career, but the one other play I want to point out from 2004 was the strip sack of Mark Brunel that turned around that game in Washington. So the Ravens were trailing, I believe, 10 to nothing at the time, and he got a sack off the edge where he was not touched. He forced the fumble, but of course, Ed Reed, forcing the fumble is not enough. If you're a defensive lineman, maybe falling on it is enough. He picked it right up, avoids a guy on the sideline and running back and runs and, and takes it to the house. It's just a, it's. It's not the trifecta, it's the whatever fourfecta is that uh, <laughs> your horse racing people will know better than me. But uh, but unbelievable year in 2004, full of highlights and just a damn shame that the Ravens were denied a playoff spot at the end of that year. Yeah, that was that was a tough pill to swallow with such a dominant year by one player. And, 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 and you know, the defense overall, you know, still still being really, really good. So it's. It's tough to see that, but man, what 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 a treat uh, we we were given with those with those teams, and and we're not done. I mean, we're just <laughs> we're just scratching the surface. So 2005, Reed had his worst season as a Raven. He played only 58 percent of the snaps, and he had just one interception. And a lot of people don't recall this was his first year at free safety. The big thing that happened that year, and there are a couple, there are a couple, but he missed his first Pro Bowl. But the big thing that happened was Rex Ryan arrived in Baltimore. And Ryan and Reed really, I think, understood each other a lot better than, say, Reed and Harbaugh later did in his early years. Ryan, for all intents and purposes, would have loved, he aspired to be Reed as a gambler on defense in terms of his play calls with the pass rush and what he was willing to try in coverage and whatnot. And Reed's instincts and his ability certainly played very well with that. Yeah, it was. Uh, it reminds me. There's. I've been doing some reading on some non-football stuff, and uh, there's this term called match quality, right? They talk about like in labor market between employees and employers, and you know what makes people stay at jobs. And so, you think about the pairing of a player and a coach, you know, particularly this defensive coordinator, in terms of that perfect match quality between a coach's style and how he wants to call defense and what he wants his guys to do and how he wants them to play. And then Ed, just his natural playing style and the aggressiveness that he played with. And that uh, I know we'll talk about this a little bit more uh, probably later, but he wasn't a gambler. I mean, I think that's a misnomer with Mm -hmm. people. And I know you agree with that. This guy studied film intensely, studied players right. intensely. And so 
when he made choices on the field, it was based on that study or based on something he saw in that game. So did it always pan out? No. And I think that's why people sort of looked at his game. Like, oh, he takes his chance and it didn't work out. And then you've heard Harbaugh talk about him leaving cornerbacks out to dry because he was supposed to be over the top or helping them out. But when you see something based on study and preparation and then it just doesn't pan out, you literally just get fooled. It doesn't make you a gambler. I mean, you're still doing something based on preparation. It just didn't turn out. Uh, but that match between him and Rex to say, hey, we're going to get this whole organized chaos thing going. And it's really going to leverage what Ed likes to do and the way Ed likes to play. It, it's a great fit. It was a great fit. Even though, interestingly enough, I'll throw this in real quick. Ed Reed said himself that he thought Dean Pease. He specifically compared Pease to Pagano and Rex and actually thought that Dean Pease, he didn't use the word better or best, but he said, I, I liked him the most because he took what those other two guys were doing to another level. And it was more not necessarily like on the field, but Ed was big into the player coach relationship should be a partnership. Right. It shouldn't be a dictatorship. And he felt Dean sort of took it. Uh, you know, Rex obviously had a reputation for being a player's coach. And so did Chuck Pagano. But he really felt like Dean Pease took that to another level in terms of taking his feedback, taking his input and allowing him to sort of, you know, be a part of putting together game plans. That's that's interesting. Now, he only played one year for Pease. So I wonder if if he would have still had that same feeling if he played for more of the Pease era in Baltimore. But that's that's a very interesting point. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. Let's move on. We'll go to 2006 and Reed again is part of one of the strongest defenses in team history. So if you look back at that year, uh, it was a team, a team that had a great pass rush, had 60 sacks. Uh, Reed had five interceptions and, and was a big force on the back end. He was joined by Dwan Landry, who was the rookie that year, who also had five picks. Um, just a great year overall for that defense. Very few things really went wrong. Um, they did have some issues in the secondary. A lot of this was the was the aggressiveness of of um, Rex in terms of creating opportunities for, for to to beat the Ravens cornerbacks one on one. A lot of people don't know this, but McAllister had 15 penalties that year, Ooh. which is an extraordinary number <laughs> for a cornerback to have in a single season. But uh, but yeah, that was uh, an interesting year there in terms of of definitely making doing a lot of things to gamble. Reed kept the Ravens in that the game that we shall never talk about, which we'll we'll, we'll talk about briefly right here. The the game in the beginning of two thousand seven after the two thousand six season where they lost to the Colts at home, mm-hmm. and you know the path was clear for the Ravens to hold the AFC Championship game at home, and they lost that opportunity with a 15 to six loss. Reed had two picks in the game of Manning, uh, including one where he lateraled the ball back into play for what should have been an opportunity for a return by McAllister that was whistled dead by an official on the sideline. And of course, given the Ravens offense at that time and just how weak McNair and, and Bowler were, uh, that was a that was a pretty serious uh, blown call there, but that uh, that had the chance to be more than more than what it ended up being. Yeah, I, I remember that game um, more probably from the negative, from the the offenses. Uh, <laughs> they just couldn't get anything going in that game. Just absolutely couldn't sustain drives. Couldn't move the ball. Uh, I I was I was. 
it's an overstatement because I don't I don't usually take losses that hard. But I I was like despondent <laughs> that game because it was like I, could, I this was you know you've got this great defense and it's got two picks they're playing well you're doing this against Peyton Manning and the offense can literally muster nothing no. like literally nothing they 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 really couldn't and I, you know I don't want to go too far afield on this but the Colts had just had a four game losing streak on the road and were coming to Baltimore. I mean, it really, really hurt, and it hurt more than any game in Ravens history that the team has lost. The, the, the 2010 loss to the Steelers, the 2008 AFC Championship loss, even the Cundiff and Evans game did not hurt as much as having that 13-3 and team lose that first playoff game. That just hurt too much. No, I mean, that team... <laughs> Well, anyway, like you said, let's let's move let's on. Let's, let's bury that one. Bury, bury the ball. We'll move on. <laughs> so 2007, the entire Ravens cornerback core went down. And Reed played all but three snaps the entire year. But uh, to give you an idea, the Ravens were playing a street corner at the end of the year, Willie Gaston. And believe me, at the, by December in the NFL, there is no one available on the street at cornerback. If you're if you if you're short a cornerback at that point, you can't trade for one. So you can't, no, no other team's corner is available. You can try and filter through the practice squads of other teams, but they've already been picked over pretty cleanly because cornerbacks get injured a lot. And there was nobody left. And Willie Gaston, a corner off the street, was uh, was somebody they had in there playing. McNair was fading. He was injured. The Ravens returned to Kyle Bowler in their desperation to start down the stretch. Um, and then that really led to the decision under no uncertain terms that they'd move forward and draft a quarterback in 2008, which they did. A four and two start uh, was capped off by a nine game losing streak uh, that, that left the team five and 11 for the year. And uh, I wouldn't say Reed himself was particularly terrible, but it was very hard for Reed to be Reed when the rest of the team is falling apart like that. And you can you'd probably say pretty safely that Reed benefited from the defenses he played on. Uh, and, and the 2007 season shows a little bit of why that was true. Yeah, I think you've tweeted about that season before. Was that the secondary of dying men? That's exactly uh, what I call. Yes, that's the 2000 season. And no, that's a that's a great point. I mean, when you play, well, look, I should just back up a step. I mean, any if 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 any secondary player plays on a defense with Ray Lewis, Haloti, <laughs> Terrell Suggs, you're going to be better, right? You're going to be better in the secondary. But even with, you know even with those guys, and even if you look at the other sort of components of the defense, his style of play, we've talked about a little bit already, really did lend itself to other guys being at least competent, if not better than competent, right? Mm -hmm. But once you get down to the kinds of guys that they were playing in 2007, then that style can almost become a hindrance and almost a detriment sometimes because these guys are not not what you would consider replacement level at that point. They're they're below replacement level. And so, you know, his his sort of aggressive approach could could almost kind of backfire in that situation. But look, I mean, what, what are you going to do, right? When you have that rash of people getting hurt at a particular position, I mean, what what are you going to do? Oh, season season was certainly lost. So any quote unquote gambling that Ed Reed did in two thousand seven didn't cost him much. Got him a little bit higher draft pick. They used that draft pick, of course, to get Joe Flacco and then Ray Rice in the second round that year. Reed in 2008 had one of the greatest defensive seasons of all time. I thought he certainly should have been the defensive player of the year that year. Um, he was outstanding. And a lot of people don't remember 
that it didn't start off quite as gaudy from a statistics point of view. He had one interception in the first 10 games, but then through the playoffs, which was another nine games, he had five multi-pick games, all two, uh, the rest of the way. And five multi-pick games, by the way, is the record for any individual season. Mm-hmm. In fact, I believe four is, but uh, <laughs> but five is, including the playoffs. And, uh, you know, we talked about the return at Miami. Um, I remember hearing one former player watch him and say, he's just a center fielder. And my response to that is just, what the hell does that mean? If he's just a center fielder, he's a Hall of Famer in baseball as well. <laughs> because that uh, that's an understatement if there ever was one. I mean, he was so much more than that. Uh, I mean, look, there are coaches, and I think people you know, who maybe can't remember some of these earlier Ed Reed memories could probably remember this. Uh, Greg Williams, who was a defensive coordinator in Cincinnati, uh, uh, excuse me, Cleveland last year, mm-hmm. uh, maybe a year before that. Right. And even in Washington, some people might remember some of his other stops and they, you know, people would get on him about how deep he played his safety. Right. I remember uh, they had a rookie uh, back there. I Was it Jabril Peppers? Yeah. Out of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And he played like 25 or 30 yards back and people would call it like the halo defense and, you know, all these gripes and complaints. He's so far from the play. He's not even involved. What's the point? Well, Ed Reed played from that position regularly and was involved in many, many plays, right? He could get to any place on the field from that position. And often, you know, it was very contrived. You know, he's literally setting quarterbacks up by playing from that depth, right? To think, well, there's no way this guy's going to be able to break on this particular throw or get this particular route. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see him backing up like, okay, he's going to go back even deeper. And then you snap the ball and he breaks at like a 90 degree angle, (laughs) right? To exactly where the ball is going. So yeah, anybody who thinks just a center fielder uh, was what made him who he was, doesn't get it, right? They're they're, they're just missing the point because other coaches have tried to play guys in, in that way at that depth. And it doesn't work. It takes right. a very special player to do that. Well, there were, there were heat maps produced with uh, Earl Thomas last year that showed how much of an effect he had on where the throws went. But believe me, Reed had that same impact. And I know you know this, I'm not saying for you to believe me, but uh, he had that same impact on the opposing quarterback. And the best evidence we can show is Tom Brady's armband, fine 20 on every play. Yep. And he, he was, re- he was very cognizant of what was happening with Ed Reed. You ask Peyton Manning to tell him the, to tell the greatest Ed Reed story. He'll tell you about the time he deked him to an interception 30 yards from where the ball was going by just turning in the opposite direction. Yeah. And then without looking back at Manning, breaking exactly on the ball where it was going to be thrown. So I, I'm, uh, I really, whenever I hear that, I'm like, you're not really watching this, are you? You know, in terms of being just a center fielder, I think more than any safety who's ever played the game, he was able to read the good potential route tree options that each receiver had from various tells they had leverage, how their feet were, however they were looking. Also, probably their tendencies that he'd seen from film before. But he really understood what were the most likely routes they would run. And he would often gamble on one. And hey, that's what free safeties do. You're not always just trying to have a reactive bracket coverage, although sometimes that works. A lot of the time, you just want to break on the football, take a chance, and maybe you get a pick. Yep. And he he's said this himself, so I'm not telling tales out of school. He said, you know, people, players, you know, would he be at a Pro Bowl or whatever, would come up to him and say, hey, man, how, how can I learn to do what you do? Or even when he kind of, you know, 
took a little short coaching stint there with, with Rex up in Buffalo. It's like, how can I learn to do what you do? I want to do what you do. He said, I can't teach reps. I can't teach experience. You know, I've done this thousands upon thousands of times, you know? So, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. Whoever, whoever's, you know, sort of dumbing it down to that level, they're watching highlights and not seeing yeah. the, the whole impact that this guy had. Right. Okay, well, let's let's move on. 2009, uh, he was a, it was a year with only three interceptions in the first of the two Madison years at mm. defensive coordinators. And Madison, a, a guy with a uh, a reputation for being kind of conservative in this town as a as a defensive coordinator. But the Raven defenses were good in those years. Uh, Reed missed four games in 2009. I would argue the 2009 team, despite their nine and seven record, was the best of the early Harbaugh era. That that team certainly had the best offensive line, and did they also have other components? But they had Orr correctly placed at right tackle and having his best year. In the middle, they had the the you know three future and current Pro Bowlers in Yonda, Burke, and Grubbs. And then on the left side, they had Jared Gaither, who was a hell of a left tackle in 2009. So they really did have a great offensive line then, and they and they and unfortunately gagged away a lot of their chance. Went nine and seven, still made the playoffs. Went to New England, beat the crap out of them in that 33-14 game, where it was over in the first quarter. Reed played a significant part in that first quarter. He had a PD to knock down a pass intended for Randy Moss. And then he had an interception on a deflected ball along the left sideline that really closed out that scoring. Actually, it set up the third touchdown uh, also. So, you know, Reed had a great uh, great year again in 2009, but it wasn't as great stat-wise as it had been. He's, he went to his fifth Pro Bowl. Uh, had two more interceptions in the playoffs, though, and two interceptions in the playoffs meant intercept Brady, intercept Manning. Oh, uh, yeah, I, re- I remember that Patriots game. And I think, at least for me, uh, it was it was such a dominant performance that it was maybe the first game or at least maybe the beginning of sort of being able to knock that mystique off the Patriots. Like you can't mm-hmm. go up to Foxborough and win. Nobody beats them up in Foxborough. And then you could see for years after that, whenever you get into the playoffs and whenever there's talk about the various teams in the AFC and everything's got to go through New England, almost to a man, Every commentator would say, well, the Ravens aren't scared of going up to Foxborough and playing the Patriots up there. And the Patriots actually, you know, are very respectful of their of all the teams who they might have to face. That's the team, you know, that they're probably the most worried about. And obviously, Ed, you mentioned Tom Brady's wristband and there have been sort of the behind the scenes clips with Belichick and Brady like sitting down together and. You know, Belichick just like, you know, mm-hmm. like a fanboy over Ed Reed and how great he was and how he could do all of these amazing things. So they were very well aware of just how special Ed was. If he was a center fielder, uh, he had them full. <laughs> yeah. well, there you go. And that, that uh, I, I agree with that. That's something certainly I think the Patriots fans have been respectful about that. They're, they they'll they'll talk crap all day long about beating Indianapolis or Pittsburgh at home, but but they they have lost two out of four playoff games to the Ravens. The other two, they won them by the skin of their teeth, and they probably shouldn't have won either of those. So uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's certainly a place where the Ravens hadn't been afraid to play. So let's move forward into 2011 now. Chuck Pagano takes over as the, as the defensive coordinator. The Ravens reach the AFC Championship game after Ed Reed's interception sealed the win against the Texans in that divisional game in Baltimore. That's kind of a forgotten playoff game, I think, for a lot of people. A, a, a not 
dominant 20 to 13 win over the Texans with TJ Yates at quarterback. And then, and, but it's Reed uh, hauling in a ball intended for, I forget, I don't think it was Andre Johnson because it was uh, Lardarius Webb shut down Andre Johnson in that game. But, but Ed Reed uh, hauled in a ball that was thrown down to the goal line, which for what could have been the tying score in the, in the waning seconds. And uh, that put the game away. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that that season gets only remembered for the Lee Evans <laughs> play, right? Uh, it's like everything else gets sort of overshadowed um, by that one play. But that, you know, as, as, as heartbreaking as that was, um, as deflating as it was, it really did kind of set the scene for the next season. I can remember... Um, that Ray Lewis speech right in the locker room afterwards. I think somebody, somebody played or, or wrote up, you know, how, how he told them, he said, look, this is, this is the beginning, right? Don't look at this as the end. This is the beginning next year. We're going to come back and we're going to win this thing next year. You know, I don't want any guy in this locker room dropping his head right over what happened here, because this is the beginning and not the, you know, and only the way that Ray could, you know, very pastoral and he gets everybody fired up. But it really did kind of set the stage. And you could say, well, look, teams always do that right after a bit. Yeah, we're going to come back next year. We're going to win the Super Bowl. But they actually did it. (laughs) Pretty, pretty rare, I think. Right. We'll come back to the Super Bowl just one second, because in 2011, there was talk by now, by the way, that Reed would retire every year. You talk about it in the offseason and it got to be kind of a tiresome thing where they would every year have to reset a two year deal for him with a signing bonus to kind of get him to hang around. And that that's I understand the finances of the game and why it was important for Reed to get that. And the Ravens certainly didn't overpay, given what they did end up paying for. But in 2011, I really thought he might retire after that year. And in fact, right before the final drive that was set up, you know, that Flacco drove him down the field, Flacco to Bolden, Flacco to Bolden, then Flacco to Evans, and the ball was uh, was stripped by Sterling Moore. And also you had Cundiff's missed, missed kick right after that. But the, the play that set up that drive was a third and whatever play where Ed Reed got a PD against Aaron Hernandez and great play to start with. And he went to pick up the ball and I thought, Oh shit, what does that mean? He's, <laughs> is he taking that ball because he knows that's his last PD as a player here and he's walking yeah. off the field with it. I'm like, uh Oh, this isn't good. And then he flicked the ball away at the last minute. And goes, <laughs> yeah. He was just caught up in the emotion of it all. But, um, no, that's 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 a very good point. I do kind of remember those now where there was always that feeling that this could be the last year. And particularly after the way that game ended, uh, if you ever thought this really is the one um, that that had to be the one. But thankfully, thankfully, you're right. They just flipped that ball away and that had to be a sigh of relief for you and uh, other Ravens fans watching that. There you go. So anyway, 2012 came around. Finished his career with a good season. Interception, Super Bowl 47 to cap things off. There's two two things about that. One thing about that particular interception, which was fairly common in Ed's career, is that Ed really understood bracket coverage and how to be on the back end where if there was any sort of a mistake with the throw, he was going to be in a position to make the pick. And this was one of these plays where he's five or six yards behind the receiver but perfectly lined up to take to either work with a deflection or collect an overthrow, which I believe was just a plain overthrow from Kaepernick on that on that play. But uh, but anyway, he, he was remarkable at that. 
and uh, finished with it. That was his ninth interception in 15 career postseason games, which ties the all-time record. Of course, the other two guys played a lot more postseason games to get there. Yeah, he told some pretty interesting stories about that game. He was on um, in one of the local podcasts, uh, the team podcast, the lounge podcast, uh, with Ryan Mink and Garrett Downey. And he said he actually played that game with two torn MCLs, that he tore his right and left MCL in the first quarter. So he told, tore it in the right knee and the left knee, and he said it was diagnosed. And he said, go check it out. He said, it's on the books. You know, that's, uh, I don't know how you would ever get this information from the draft. Yes. <laughs> but he says, you know, it's diagnosed. But he said there was no way that he was coming out of that game, right? There was no way in the world he was coming out of the game. And he told another story, and I got to make sure I got this one right. If it wasn't the play, the last play where Jimmy uh, was was against Crabtree and the yes. – no, no pass interference. Clearly, no pass interference. I think we can all agree on that. Um, if it wasn't that play, it was a play before where Ed said that he he blitzed. I think. I think he rushed Kaepernick or did something, and he wasn't supposed to. Uh, <laughs> he said that he the call of the, the design of the play was for him to sort of be in the back and sort of help out there, but he saw where uh, he saw something. And he decided to just to just Act blitz and yeah yeah and so uh, again just another example of of him you know believing what he saw what 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 he he came across in his preparation but the stories about the the MCLs I had never heard that before never heard that before and this you know it's what he said himself so if uh, if that's accurate that's even more great because he said he should have had more interceptions that's how it came up because they brought up the fact that he had uh-huh. one and he said I should have had more but uh, you know I tore my MCLs. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's a it's a great game. I, I he's he the the way I recall the story you're telling. And I don't want to micro this, but but is that he was supposed to blitz on that final play, but he decided instead that the pass was definitely going to Crabtree, and he ran there over there. And he says, if you look at that throw, had it been on target, either me or Jimmy would have picked it off because we go. were we had him, yeah. No, I, I, there's only one thing. I had some other comments about his career, but I think we've kind of fit this into the timeline display of this. But I did want to come up with this one more thing because Ed Reed's interception rate, I don't think, is appreciated mm-hmm. on the level it is. Now, Ed Reed comes in with a high career interception total, so we know that. But he is, even when you include the playoffs and bump him to 73 career interceptions— Ed Reed is still only third on the all-time NFL list behind Paul Krause, Emlyn Tunnel, and then Rod Woodson's at 72, Ronnie Lott's at 72, and you have uh, Lane and Riley at 68, Charles Woodson at 66, Darren Sharper 65, and then Brown and LeBeau at 62. Here's here's the point I want to make about this. Relative to his era, Ed Reed's position is, let's say, somewhat different when you refactor relative to the overall interception rate that occurred from 1945 to 2016. So uh, let me explain that a little further because I think I just did a crap job on that. From 1945 to 2016, per team, per game, there were 1.234 interceptions. Okay, when Ed Reed was getting his big interception totals, there were only about between 0.9 and slightly over 1 interceptions per team per game. So when you adjust Ed Reed's interceptions to be for that year, how much is that for a typical NFL season between 1945 and 2016? 
Reed's total jumps to, uh, and that's adjusted interceptions here. Let me get this number for you. Uh, well, Reed's, because I adjusted it to the Reed era, is 73. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you adjust it to the, the NFL average, it's 91 he jumps mm-hmm. to, which is significantly more and is the highest total of all time by nine. The next highest is Charles Woodson at 82.5 and Rod Woodson at 81.4. But that's not the end of it because you really then need to look at his interceptions per 16 games played to make sure the old timers in particular are being treated fairly in terms of interceptions per game when they play a shorter year. The 12 game season uh, in the NFL was the standard for a long time than the 14 and now it's 16. But looking back to that at the uh, interceptions per game, playoffs included now, uh, we're going to go through the list. We're going to we're going to go through all the players here really quickly. But we see that Brown had 4.11 interceptions per 16. LeBeau, 441, 4.41. And these are all the guys in the top 10 of the all-time interception list. Riley, 455. Tunnel, 468. He was the interception leader for many years, but did it in an era with many more interceptions. Uh, Lane, 4.73. Paul Krause, who was the interception leader also for a long time, in fact still is, is 4.79 interceptions per 16 games. Charles Woodson, modern era guy, 4.87 interceptions per 16 games. Rod Woodson, 5.05. Ronnie Lott, 5.37. Darren Sharper, 5.64. And Ed Reed, 7.67 interceptions per 16 games. So to put it this way, his interception total is 36% higher on a per-game basis than the next highest player in NFL history. And I totally agree. I definitely don't think it's appreciated that way. And for those Steelers and Eagles fans who might be listening, I think when you lay it out that way, I don't know if there's any other case to be made, at least in terms of interceptions. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty significant difference adjusted for era and, you know, sort of the interception rates for a particular era. That's amazing, actually. I had no idea that. It, I mean, we you, we talked about this a little bit, and, you, you know, I, you definitely said that, you know, there was a difference, but I, I hadn't heard the exact number until right now. I mean, that that's very, very surprising. Yeah, the the one guy who's who's got a, who's off to a pretty good start and he hasn't kept it up already is Marcus Peters was yeah. off to a great start. But that's a lot of a lot of times that'll happen. A guy in his first two or three years, it's kind of like there's a lot of a lot of more 400 hitters at the end of April than there are at the end of the season. So uh, yeah, and I guess you know in this era too. I mean, I guess people are are expecting maybe you know somebody will kind of continue and and sort because you know teams are throwing it around so much more now. Um, but I. I I don't know if you ever will see that again. <laughs> I mean, a, a rate, a number that I, you can, every time you, you say that, then of course, if you live, you know, long enough, or, or even if you don't, you know, as, yeah. as time passes by, there will be somebody, but uh, I don't know that that sounds like a really hard number to beat. Uh, and I know it's not something that, you know, is, is going to be reflected in an official stat or anything like that, but it's an important one uh, for perspective. Yeah. It's, it's definitely an outlier. In terms of one, I want to read a few memories that people had of Ed D. Read from the uh, from the mailbag here. So let's let's do that real quick. Okay. Uh, the strip shack that recovered from the TD is one. Zach Weinberg also had that one from that uh, Washington game. Uh, let's see. This is a good one. Primetime game versus Mark Sanchez, where Webb had a pick six 
in the red zone at a critical moment in the game. I'm not remembering this. I do remember Webb having a, a pick of Mark Sanchez and taking it to the house. Uh, but Reed was screaming something to Webb right before the snap. It's a good memory there. This is some good stuff. We're going to get some new memories. There's a lot of ones we've already talked about today. We're going to try and, and just credit people for giving them to us, but uh, but we can't go over every single one. We had a lot of people talking about the 64-yard return against Miami. Uh Anyway, I, I, I don't think we have time to go through all this. I think we have covered a lot of them already, but uh, uh, what a career. I mean, you could just, we could talk, I'm sure, for another hour about individual highlights that he had or that great video, if you haven't seen it, that the Ravens produced with every single one of his interceptions. It's just fantastic. Really worth the watch. It's about 10 minutes long, and you see every one. I retweeted that, and I said, just, just think about what you're watching here for a minute. A nine-plus-minute video of nothing but interceptions. <laughs> Right, it doesn't take into account any other great plays or highlight, you know, real plays that he made uh, throughout his career, which there were many. Literally, just nine minutes of interceptions. I mean, it's it's almost unthinkable. It didn't didn't even have the returns on most of them. It did have some of the touchdowns that included all of the the return yardage because they were looking for it. But uh, wow, what it's it's definitely worth the watch. A wonderfully produced uh, Ravens video there. Yes, very well done. All right. Oh, Michael, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this impromptu to to make sure we 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 paid the proper respects to a player I know we both loved and 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 just marveled at his career. Uh, it, I I don't think there are too many Ravens fans who just don't gush over Ed Reed's accomplishments when they talk about it. There's there are some people they'll complain a little bit about what happened, or maybe they'll even complain about him as a tackler in the later years, which you're really nitpicking at that point. Yep. But they, uh, I, I think most people just tend to gush over the plays that they'll remember about him. I'm sure he'll be a player we all remember. What do you think about a statue for Ed Reed? Yeah, there's been some talk about that lately, hasn't there? Um, it's interesting because I've heard some some sentiment uh, recently, and, and some of it maybe is just the recency bias thing because he's the latest guy of the greats, right? Ray Lewis and Ed Reed mm-hmm. to be enshrined. And, you know, a lot of talk about, hey, maybe Ed – is our favorite player, right? Maybe Ed is our, is, is the favorite Raven of all time. And so, uh, no matter how you come down on that, you certainly can probably agree that he's, he's right there. Uh, you know, you hear him talk about, uh, the whole Batman and Robin comparison to him and Ray. And he's like, who's to say I'm not Batman. So, (laughs) uh, so, you know, I, I, it's interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I probably would be okay with it. He's certainly deserving. I mean, I don't think there's any question of that. He said his career is certainly deserving of it. Uh, but I guess there was the, the, the sort of argument out there. So like, okay, well then do you build a statue of J.O. for Jonathan Ogden too? I mean, where do you just have like a statue garden at some point? And you just have like all of these statues of all these great. And I said, well, look, it's not going to get to that point, right? They're not going to have five or six different statues out there. There's probably three or four. And then that's probably it. Well, I I think, you know, they probably have number four on the way and they might have number five on the way. We'll see if it goes. But, you know, obviously they've got a Unitas statue and I'm not even counting that in the group. But you got four entrances and Ray and Unitas have one set. Go yeah. ahead. Put Ed Reed at one entrance. Put it. Put J.O. at an entrance. And then Terrell Suggs is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Go ahead and put him at one also. That's right. I don't I don't know how I could have left Suggs out. Well, and, and then I guess the next question is. I don't really believe Marshall Yonda is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer unless he plays for significantly longer. But is it possible Justin Tucker could be a first ballot Hall of Famer at some point in the future? You know, so I, you know, I'm not saying it's the it's it's the 
only way to go, but I've got no problem at all spending Bishotti's money on, on additional statues. <laughs> sure, he, sure he appreciates the ease yeah. at which you, you, you want to spend his money. Uh, but I, I don't know. I can't imagine he would have any problem with that. I mean, if, if, if you were going to do it for a guy, uh, he's, he's the guy that you're going to do it for. And then, like you said, I didn't think about the four different entrances. I mean, it sort of makes sense, right? You can, you could do it that way and then, uh, figure out what you want to do with thugs. But, uh, no, I, I'd be perfectly fine with it. And, uh, if we could get that same look on his statue that he got from the bust, we could just get the head <laughs> and they could do whatever they want with the uniform and the body. If we get that same look, that would be awesome. Yeah. That'd be, it'd be a great statue. That's for sure. I, 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 I would like a, in uniform because I think there are so many great in motion plays from, from Ed that, that are definable and remind you of a moment. Unlike Ray who, you know, they've got him dancing coming out of the tunnel effectively, or, you know, shouting after a play. That's fine. That's, that's the way we think of Ray more often, but there isn't this particular play other maybe him taking the ball away from Eddie George that would be in that same class. Anyway, Appreciate your time, Michael, and uh, and we'll come back and we'll be doing some some shows coming up this week after the first exhibition game to talk yeah, about. Yeah, pre, preseason's ramping up. I'm excited. Who's the player? Just before we before we log off here, who's the player you're most excited to see on Thursday night? Well, uh, I guess I know I'm supposed to pick one, uh, but this guy's not going to play. I don't think Hollywood Brown's not going to play, so I'm not going to pick him. He would be the guy. I was uh, most excited to see, but I don't believe that he's going to play. Um, so for me, I'm probably going to go. Pff, I'll stay on offense. I want to go on defense, but I'll, I'll stay on offense. And I'll go Miles Boykin just because, yeah. you know, there's been all of the reports and, and, and certainly, you know, he has made plays and has played well uh, in practice. But now l- let's see it in a game. And again, it's a preseason game and it's the first preseason game. And people will say, well, he's doing it against guys who aren't even going to be in the league. That's OK. There's a progression to this, right? You have to do it in, in minicamp, then OTA, then practices, then preseason. So as long as you see this continual performance, uh, then I'm I'm totally fine with that. And I think that's exactly the way that you want it to happen. So I'll, I'll go with Boykin. Okay. I got two players that I'm that I'm excited to see what they're how they're different this year. And the the first is Jaleel Scott on offense because he's been a lot better um, in camp this year so far than 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 where he's been last year, that's for sure. And the other on defense, I do want to see something from Jalen Ferguson, so he's a guy I'd pick, but Deshaun Elliott is the guy. They need to find out if he can play on the back end, if he's the answer there for the next few years as a, another safety who can play back. Two good picks, two good picks, both All of right. those guys. You get a defender uh, if you want. Okay, okay, that's nice. Thank you, I get a bonus Get a bonus pick. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to throw in another defender. All right, I'm gonna, and I'm going to cheat again. Uh Tim Williams, Tyus Bowser. Okay, you got uh, that. Both, yeah, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I probably stole one there. But uh, both guys going into year three. Is mm-hmm. that right for both guys? And, you know, I think um, Joe Cullen said it, right? The the clock is ticking. Yep. You know, we got to we gotta see it. We got to see it now. So uh, by all accounts, uh, Bowser has, has had a good camp. Uh, I think he's, he's coming off what Harbaugh said with his best week of practice, maybe mm-hmm. ever as a Raven, not just this year. Um, Take that for what it's worth. But let's see what happens, you know, in these games. It's time. Like uh, like Coach Cutlin said, the clock is ticking. Yeah, he had a pressure today. It looked, looked good. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to see him. Big interception with the return uh, on Monday against the Jags. So, all right. 
Michael, we'll uh, we'll talk to you again on probably Friday of this week to talk some defense or some offense. We'll decide which one we're going to do first, and uh, hope you guys will tune in again after that. Right. Sounds good. Thanks, Ken. Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry-first two-in-one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must-have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.